that's a huge part of it. Like when they walk in, it's boom. They should instantly feel welcome and like a part of the community almost. If you work with gin pop clients or runners that are struggling with nagging aches and pains, then this episode is a must listen. Dr. Michelle Bolin is a certified strength and conditioning coach with distinction and owner of Michelle Bolin Training, LLC. Michelle was previously the director of education at a private training facility and has several years experience as a strength and conditioning coach for a D1 collegiate institution. Michelle specializes in movement biomechanics, athletic development, and improving fitness while addressing nagging pain or injuries that may be limiting performance. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, even though I'm well-known for training elite athletes across numerous sports, the fact of the matter is I've trained Gen Pop clients my entire career as well. And in this episode, I think there's some great discussion about how to help these clients the most when it comes to writing their programs and training them in the gym. But beyond just Gen Pop clients, a lot of the people we train love to run for recreation as well, even though it's probably my least favorite form of fitness. So what things can we do in the gym that will help these runners stay healthy and running at a high level. In one of my favorite segments of the show, we talk about how moving from coach to client has been an eye-opening experience for Michelle and why every coach should be doing this in some form or fashion. And last but not least, we talk about Michelle's coaching evolution, including what she wished she knew five, 10, 10 years ago, as well as how she sees herself evolving in the five to 10 years to come. Quite simply, this is a fun and engaging conversation between two coaches, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into this awesome new episode with Michelle Bolin. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym. And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the CERT is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the CERT only open twice per year for a limited time. but If you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you'll join us when the next Complete Coach Certification launches. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you back on. For anybody that is new to you, could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thanks, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure to be on again. My name is Michelle Bolin. Currently, I own my own company called, very cleverly, Michelle Bolin Training. (laughs) I actually just started a new company, which I'm kind of 
wrapping my head around what to do with called reframe performance. So we'll see how okay, that goes. I like that. Yeah. But I, I have a background in nutrition, strength and conditioning, and I have a PhD in exercise physiology. And I worked at a D1 college, Northeastern University, for about four to five years working with mainly ice hockey players. And then I worked as a director of education at a private training facility. And so that's kind of feel like I've had a good foot in the door with all the types of avenues that a trainer can have. So feel yeah. pretty good about that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And what's new since the last time we chatted? What's new in your world? Anything exciting? <laughs> the most exciting thing, I think, besides maybe personal life changes little, I moved like 30 minutes north and I absolutely love it, is I started my own weekend kind of seminar or conference. I feel okay. like I've spent years and years, just like yourself, going to conferences and events. And you kind of pick out what you really like. You pick out what you probably think can be improved upon. And I created my own. It's called the Boston Health and Performance Summit. I'm going to do it annually. And it's grown greatly over the past two years. And I really look forward uh, to seeing where that goes. And that's going to be held every June around the Boston, Massachusetts area. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you've done it two years now, you said, or three? Yep. Last year, we I found a different spot pretty much every year. But last year, we had it at Mike Boyle's up in Woburn, Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah, that's exciting. You learn a lot running live in-person events, right? There's a lot of overhead. You spend yep. a lot of money before you make any money. So that can be scary <laughs> and daunting. But yeah, especially that's exciting, the, man. Especially the first year, everything came out of my pocket. I, uh -huh. I took all the risk. And I ended up, I couldn't promise speakers a flat rate because I had no idea the attendance I was going to have. So luckily I found some speakers who I gave percentages of the profit with and that oh, worked out go. well, but yeah, I learned a ton of lessons. I absolutely love doing it. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. It's been a hot minute, man. We ran the, first it was the Midwest Performance Enhancement Seminar, which was like the worst name ever. Finally <laughs> changed that to the Physical Prep Summit. We ran like nine of those, man, but you got to get to 10. So you get to double digits. I don't know if I'm going to make it there unless I do like a, a 10 year and then we're done. Yeah. Like an alumni event, like this mass That's right. farewell. That's right. That's right. Okay. So one thing that I have noticed here lately from you is lots of talk about running triathlons, ultra marathons. So you are deep in that game and it's absolutely Somebody that absolutely loathes running myself. Help me understand your passion for it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. We all have our things. Actually, yes. one of the biggest things people who aren't close with, like fairly close with me don't know is I was a massive runner in undergrad. I, okay. If you ask anyone I played soccer with, I would come in and I would destroy like the mile test every year. And I would practice with the cross country and track teams, even though I was on the soccer team, but I just... Mm -hmm. went to their practices for fun. And yeah. up where I went to school, there was a massive trail system. I ran trails all the time. It wasn't until grad school where basically lifting weights became the sole focus is where I kind of dropped off quite a bit. But one of my friends roped me into a half marathon. And I was just like, literally, I was like you. <laughs> I told my friends and my spouse, like, you couldn't pay me enough money to run a marathon. That sounds so ridiculous to me. I would right. never do that. And I ran the half marathon and I, my eyes basically just lit up. I was, I became very competitive and I was just like, okay, let's see where I can take this. And the difference is I prefer the trails. I'll probably, like I said, never do a, a road event again. I feel like okay. the road beats you up and it's just like just the same thing over and over trails. It's almost like a mindfulness practice. You're in nature. I take my sure. dog with me all the time. I think it's the ultimate form of agility. Like you never know where your next foot placement is going to be. You have to navigate the terrain. And I just find that just insanely entertaining and, yeah. and joyful. Yeah, no, I can totally support that. Like, I love a good hike or being out in nature. Mm -hmm. So I can totally see that aspect of it. Like I always joked around and said, cause I had to run cross country my junior year of high school, our basketball coach or the guy that was the cross country coach became the basketball coach. And he mandated everybody that plays basketball is going to run cross country. 
So maybe that's part of it too. I just hated the running to run. I loved when it was chasing a basketball or a soccer ball, but I can totally get where you're coming from. If you're outdoors in nature, Mm -hmm. that seems way more entertaining than just pounding miles on the pavement. Yeah, absolutely. It's like some people look at it as almost like a form of punishment when they're in like field sports, their coach would be like, okay, you guys lost. Like you have to go run five laps. And that kind of way of thinking or framing it can ruin a lot of people's future experiences with those types of things. Sure. Okay. So let's say on a whim, I want to start training more runners, right? Because you've been in the strength training community, obviously. Now you've been around the running community some. What are some of the biggest gaps that you see in the physical development of runners that we could maybe help them out with? Okay. There's probably a a few things. And these are things that you kind of have to really manage or go back and forth with and really think about of one is doing things that they're avoiding, which is probably like zone two type of training stuff. Right. Um, The other one is, and I think about this a lot is the management. And I would love to hear what you have to say about this, the management of similar demands. So doing the actual thing versus doing what looks like the thing. So for example, some of the races I do are like 10,000 feet of elevation gain. And Mm. there's a huge difference with doing step ups and split squats in the gym isn't the actual thing where doing like hill training is the actual thing and will prepare you more. But say I do a hill training session and then maybe two days later I'm in the weight room and I'm doing a ton of step ups and split squats. Is that impeding my progress because it's maybe putting me in a deeper hole. So those types of things really need to be like played around with and managed. Hmm, That's interesting. Let's start with zone two, right? So I'm kind of intrigued by this because I've just thought people that run like, like to run. So they do (laughs) all the zones. So what do they do? Do they just get too high on the intensity scale? Is it just like chasing the endorphins and I would say people don't have a clear representation of their intent for a single session. So uh, they, they play around with the middle ground too much. Like they'll go out for a run and they'll be pushing like a little under or at their threshold where it's like yep. kind of wasted volume. And it's, I've heard you talk about this before. You play at the extremes where it's just long, slow running zone two. People tend to not do that because they want quote unquote, like a hard workout. They want to sweat, Right. right? And then they'll go do like sprinting and stuff after where it's okay. You know, where's the slow, you know, kind of boring type of training that will really set like your aerobic foundation. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And it makes sense, right? I feel like we do that in the gym sometimes too, where you don't want to do the boring stuff, right? You just want to get to the stuff that makes you sweat and makes you feel like you had a hard workout. So the other part that's interesting is this idea of, like you said, maybe competing demands. Mm -hmm. And I'd be interested to see how people set that up because I do think, and maybe part of it is just like the time of year, right? Like before we got on the show, you were talking about this is your off season, right? So maybe this is the time where you are spending more time in the weight room and maybe building your strength base, prepping yourself in a general sense for those hills. But like you said, there is no comparison. If you got to go out and run a hill, nothing you're going to do in the weight room is going to ideally prepare you for that. You need to go out and run hills to get ready to run hills in a race. Exactly. And I think when I was at like a high training volume, I wasn't lifting very much, but when I was, it was a very low volume and like a quick stimulus. Some of the Mm. mistakes I made in the beginning was you don't need to train like strength endurance within the weight room. You don't need to do like these 15 to 20 rep sets. And also I was doing a lot of low amplitude plyometrics and like pushing into the ground and jumps. And it's, aren't I doing that quite often as I'm running? And maybe I'm not allowing my body, especially my lower body to recover very much from the runs if I'm continuously just doing that almost every day. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And like you said, you're getting a ton of extensive plyos, right? If that's how you Mm -hmm. want to think about it, those short, quick, ground contacts, you're getting thousands, tens of thousands of those when you're out running. And I talked about this was probably years ago now with a guy named Menahem Brody who came on the show and he trains a lot of cyclists. And Menahem was talking about same thing. They get in the weight room and it's, hey man, if we're going to train in here, we're going to actually try and get strong 
or get powerful. It's like almost the exact opposite of what you're going to get when you're putting in all the zone two work. Like you got to fill that bucket to some degree to make sure that you've got those fast twitch motor units and you've got those muscles there when you need them. Absolutely. And the last thing probably is some something that you of all people are fantastic to talk about and relay this message a lot is if I'm continuously doing like the same things and I'm experiences kind of consequences from maybe my high training volume or just pushing myself in that realm of performance, where if I'm having kind of focal loading with some issues like, hey, I'm having, yeah, I feel this in my knee a little bit, feel this in my ankle. And then we kind of do those types of things where I'm still pushing in those directions or where that focal load is, focal loading is occurring instead of distributing forces. So basically yeah. it comes down to you want to manage the consequences of what you're putting your body through too, because you're getting pushed forward a lot when you're running, especially road running, where sure. like pushing people back is probably going to support them. Absolutely. So one thing that's interesting, I know you recently not made the switch, but you went <laughs> from just being a coach to being a client as well, as you've been working with Dan Sanzo and he helped you prep for this most recent ultra race. Am I correct? Yep. Okay. So I'd love to hear this because I think this is so important for coaches. Don't just coach and sit on your throne all day. Go and be a client, be a student. So what have you learned as a client working with Dan? No, that's a great question. It's been a great experience. I think there's nothing that beats having another person's eyes on you. You can think you have all the answers, but someone else taking a look and giving their opinion is just outweighs anything. And it's been a fantastic experience. I just noticing I'm the type of person who will just push myself into the ground. So one, knowing yourself a little <laughs> bit, your flaws and being like, okay, like, I can't do this on my own and managing that high training volume. There's a, it's cognitively loading. Like I'm thinking about my training where I'm not probably putting as much time and effort into managing the consequences as I should. And mm. Ann was worked at me with worked with me at Northeastern university. And he's a good friend of mine now. And he's like an absolute go-to in any sort of anatomy or biomechanics information. So I went to go see him and it was just got really good insight into connecting things to my body of, okay, uh, this is like a yellow flag. This is an orange flag. When do I need to peel back a little bit? And he, you know, assesses kind of my movement my patterns, if you want to call it. And then he gave me a lot of mobility drills, positioning drills, whatever you want to call it, to counteract what the running was doing to my body. I was getting pushed yes. forward quite a bit. And it was sure. locking um, in my foot into place, which would lock my hip into place. And I felt like I was a fantastic client because I did, and I still do, <laughs> Everything he gives me every single day. So that's awesome. And I've noticed a huge like benefit from it. I would text him after like my 50 mile races and be like, hey, I feel awesome. I feel fine. And I would thank him every time because I know he has a lot to do with it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think anytime you think about it from a client perspective, right? So <laughs> if you're talking like Gin Pop or somebody a little bit more random that hires you, they're in a lot of ways, hiring you for accountability, right? Like they know they should work out, whatever. They're hiring you because they don't want to work out. And they know if they are on the books with you, they're probably going to show up, right? And they're going to give more effort. But I think as coaches, one of the best things that we get from this is the objectivity, right? Because we get married to our own thoughts, our own biases. Oh, I know how to take care of myself. I know how to take care of my body. And then somebody else looks at you, like you said, fresh eyes, and they're like, oh, I see this. And you're like, oh, crap. Yeah, you're right. Like, I need that objectivity that I can't give myself. Yeah, I think it's a huge point. And I think there's nothing but a positive experience that can come with it. It's just it's an, a learning opportunity. And some of the things that he's pointed out and given me, I've been able to kind of turn into other exercises 
And especially when I'm training in the weight room a little bit more these days, I can use the concepts and things that he's giving me to continue my training forward, even though I'm still seeing him. Sure. What was your biggest takeaway? Do you have one thing where you're like, like one thing you pointed out or maybe an exercise or activity and you're like, yo, this is like money. The feet. I don't think, I think there's a lot of focus learning biomechanics related to shoulders, rib cage, hips, femurs, but I don't yeah. think we get distal enough. Like learning, he went to depth on even just the rotation that's been happening in my forearms and hands and especially my foot that I was initially having issues with. And so I think learning about that has really helped me understand what's going on, especially with other people as well. Yeah. And the feet, especially in your world, right? It's death by paper cut. So <laughs> it's not like you're sprinting or squatting heavy weights, but if you're putting in tens of thousands of steps every day and your foot isn't impacting the ground in the right way, or you're not distributing forces well at your foot, whether it's your foot or somewhere else up the kinetic chain, it's probably going to cause issues at some point. Exactly. And kind of pointing out where I was having a lot of focal loading and why that was happening by flags saying, hey, this is going on. We need to do something about it before it gets too far. Even we changed like some padding in my right foot and got some different mm. insoles. And that was just like a world of difference. That's awesome. So kind of shifting gears slightly, I know you train a lot of gin pop clients, so I'd love to hear your thoughts here. Because I know you're always thinking and learning too, right? You're not stagnant ever. What are some of the lessons that you've learned when training your Gen Pop clients over, say, the last three to five years? No, that's a great question. And I think everything is lessons, especially even if you fail at something. Even I've failed a few times and then I've been like, okay, even if it's not right away, maybe down the line, I'm like, oh, this is why I failed and this is how I can get better at it. The biggest lessons I learned from moving from division one athlete to gen pop clients is one tactics and strategies of working with people in pain because working with athletes, I always had a world-class PT and athletic training team with me where they were passed on and we would have meetings and integrate them into the weight room. But it was kind of like a separate thing. It was more of an injury because quote unquote, like D D1 athletes are kind of tough. Like they won't let that become almost a fear. It's just something, hey, how quickly can I get over this so I can get back on the ice kind of a thing. Where general population clients, there's probably a persistent aspect of it where it's been happening for quite some time. And there's a lot of emotion attached to that. And being able to listen to someone, not promise them that you're going to solve anything, but keep fitness in mind while they're dealing with these things was a huge thing that I had to learn how to work through. The second one would kind of be associated with that as like pro athletes and college athletes, they're not scared of anything. You ask them to go do a box jump for like 40 inches. They're like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. No, no problem. Um, give me the bigger but, one, right? Exactly. Give, me the, give me the next one. Yeah. I don't need the one with the padding. I won't fall. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of fear associated with movement with people who have no training or sports history. And there's from that, there's a lot of disassociation with people from their bodies. And I think that's something that I hadn't had experience with, like trying to remove the fear of any movement or even coming to the gym with these type of clients. And then the third one, I think is a unique one in terms of sales strategies. Every time you talk to someone, you're selling yourself. And mm -hmm. I never had to do that in the college realm because they were basically forced to come see me. You have to sell people on why you provide value. So can you communicate your value? What is your value? Why are you different? People have to pay you money. You have to talk and be open about payment transactions and things like that. And that was a huge thing for me. So those I'd say with yeah. my top three. Yeah, man, let's unpack some of those. I think there's some <laughs> good stuff there. First off, training people in pain. I remember when I was coming up way back in the day, people <laughs> would talk about, oh, if anybody has any pain, you refer out. And I think that sounds great when you're thumping your speech in front of a crowd. But we all know, look, if I did that, I would have zero clients. 
<laughs> right? Especially gin pop clients. Some people are coming in, oh man, I gardened all weekend. My back's a little sore. Or, oh man, I ran around with my grandkids. My knee's a little sore. So learning how to take care of those people, not make it worse, right? Like you said, we're not promising, oh, I'm going to fix this today, but helping them understand, look, just because you have aches, pains, that's part of the process. We've got to figure out ways that we can continue to train and work around it while we deal with the issue at hand. So I think number one, getting comfortable and confident training people in pain is almost like a prerequisite at this point in time, if you're going to be a trainer or a coach, because I can't remember the last time I had somebody that came to me and they were like, I'm hundred percent healthy, do whatever we want. Let's just go in and let's go ham day one. Just doesn't happen. Yeah. And, and they don't teach you that stuff in school. Like those types of topics don't no. come up and they teach you movement screens. And if someone has like a uh, pain with anything, it's you don't touch that. You don't deal with them. It's just not reality. And Oh, there's right. a huge correlation between what happens with someone's personal life and then how they're physically feeling coming into the gym. Like I have a few clients where if I if they tell me they're in a stressful situation, either at work or like their mom's sick, then the next sentence out of their mouth is, yeah, and my shoulder's start, starting to bother me again and my back's starting to bother me again. And it's, yeah, like these are things that we have to be flexible with and adapt through, especially if we want to keep working with people. Yeah. And just to put a little like disclaimer on this, I'm not saying like willingly take all people with pain, yes. right? Like you have to know what you know, what you don't know. And the more things, the more people you work with that, that range gets broader, but kind of as a, an aside to that, make sure you're building your network along mm -hmm. the way, right? As a private practitioner, Hey man, if, if you're at a D1 school, you do. You've got a PT, an ATC, a nutritionist, a psychologist. You have all these people. It should be your goal if you're in a private setting to try and build this sort of network as well, right? You do have somebody that's got knee pain and you're like, I can't figure this out. I'm going to send them to the PT, massage therapist. This person was killing it in the gym, but they're not losing weight. I've got a nutrition person or a dietitian. I think that just makes you look way more professional when you have this network to go alongside your training practice. Yeah, exactly. And you're not just like sending someone off to fairy tale land and being like, yeah, go find a PT, figure it out. And then maybe I'll see you later. It's with people, you can talk to them and collaborate and you can make it a good experience for them and show them that you really care. Yeah. And you want to make sure you have people that like align with your ideology too, right? One of my online clients was having some knee stuff. So she went and saw a doc and the doc's advice to her was basically don't squat below 30 degrees. I'm like, wow. That's sage life advice. When you've got little kids at home, you got to get up and down off the toilet, go up and down off stairs. Like, how do you not flex your knee more than 30 degrees? So regardless, mm -hmm. find people that align with your values. Second, you talked about fear. And I think this is such an important one, especially if you train older clients, because I never would have thought of this, right? I never would have thought of this because even the oldest people that I trained were 50 or maybe 60. But when you start getting like 70 and 80 year old clients, like falling is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And if they fall, it could be really scary. And I remember Jay would be on our gym floor and he would be so conscious of make sure all the boxes are put away. Because the last thing you want is your 80 year old client to trip over a box and fall when they're in the gym. Yeah. So like just being smart about that stuff. And Jay and Dave now are both so good at supported activities. So I know you do a lot of, mm -hmm. I've seen you do supported stuff with like suspension trainers and that sort of thing. Man, those are game changers. It may not be important for your 30 or 40 year old, but if you've got a 70 or 80 year old that you want to teach to change levels and squat effectively, it's huge. Yep. And it actually forces you to be more creative, which is a good thing. For yes. Coaches. Yeah, exactly. You find a solution, right? Mm -hmm. Like they are the constraint, right? They've got movement limitations. How are you going to create a program that they can execute? Yeah. And, and then the last... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. And I would say with that, you have to change your goals because I think what's shoved down our throats a lot, just to add to your point, is progression with load. And it's like those types of people, like you have to change what they're doing it for. And a big lesson I learned with the popularity of Peter Atia is that's what your older adults really care about is like what they're going to feel like and be able to do when they get to that age. And that was a huge lesson for me as well. Yeah, it makes you shift your concept of progression, right? Because if you're working with a younger population, sure, progression with load is great. Mm -hmm. and, and progressing activities is great. 
but some of your older populations maybe don't have access to that. So maybe it's more volume. Maybe it's squatting to a lower box. Maybe it's using their hand support less. It's progression within the same activity that's not necessarily dependent solely on load. Yeah, absolutely. And then one other piece, because we got to talk about this. Yeah, selling, man. You're in the <laughs> private sector. You better learn how to sell. I would argue that you have to do it a little bit in a D1 environment because, yeah, they have to see you, but that doesn't mean they have to give effort or buy into what you're selling. But it is easier because they're a captive audience. But yeah, man, you got to learn how to sell. You've got to learn how to basically describe your value proposition. Because I think it's natural. Our natural intuition is just say, oh, I'm better. Yeah, I'm better. And better doesn't resonate with anybody. So you have to find ways to describe what it is that you do and how it's going to ultimately benefit them. Yeah. And these are big things that I've kind of learned from you. And even you having Mark Fisher on chatting about it, I think it was a few weeks ago. And yep. I wish there was more of a, a word change because you mentioned working with uh, athletes. We call it buy-in and trust, but literally we just transition that to the private sector. It's a sales. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're not going to buy in. They're not going to trust you. They're not going to buy with you. If they don't like, trust, and respect you, they're not going to spend their money with you. Absolutely. So I always try and come back to that. So I mentioned this up top, but one thing I really respect about you is you're always learning. You're always evolving. So with that being said, what are some things that you wish you knew five to 10 years ago that you feel would have made you a better coach or practitioner? That, that's, that's awesome. I would say removing standards. I think early on okay. you're learning stuff like I remember in grad school in the strength conditioning program, we would spend a whole afternoon going through hang clean progressions and squat progressions. And there were standards involved with that. Like you have to go below parallel, right? And you have to do it this way. And as I learned more about like biomechanics and whatnot, maybe we're pushing people into ranges. And I've kind of heard you talk about this that they don't have access to yet. And it's okay to limit depth on certain things or change exercises that deviate from the quote unquote standard to be able to get someone to do it. I would say that's probably one. The other thing that goes kind of along with that is how important foot and hand contacts are and making sure you have a connection with the ground. For example, like Anytime I have someone doing like a lunge or something and they're like, oh, I kind of feel this in my knee a little bit. And I just kind of say, hey, let's focus on our front foot contact. And then the next rep, like, oh, yeah, I don't feel it anymore. It, it helps people distribute force, have a connection with the ground and use the ground to produce force instead of pushing it all in one area. But we talked a little bit about this, but. Thinking more about the experience I want to create with clients and less focused on the actual exercises and program of like greeting mm. people at the door, sending them birthday cards, touch points, like texting them and following up with them about things that we've talked about. Hey, how's your hip feeling today? How do those exercises go? Those types of things make a big difference and could have made a big difference to me five, 10 years ago. And then the last one would kind of go back to my last point about kind of touching on the business side of things. There is a difference between running a business and having a career versus pursuing a passion. And you mm -hmm. have to get more business education. And I wish I had more confidence with payments and telling and making a justification of my worth and not feeling bad about it or not being confident when I was talking to a potential customer. So those are probably my big four. I love it. I love it. Let's unpack a couple of those too, because this is fun. <laughs> Number one, you couldn't be more correct. And it's not just because I said it. There's a lot of gray area when it comes to movement. We can have our model and this is how a squat should look. This is how a hinge should look. This is the depth you should like all that's fine and dandy. And I learned those things too, right? Like you learn the textbook stuff and then you start training real people and you realize like almost nobody looks and moves like that, right? Like almost nobody. So you start to realize, okay, what's more important is are we building the foundation so that they can over time achieve those postures or those positions? I think that's so important. Yeah, a hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. It's definitely something you learn over time. Yeah. 
Okay, second, hand and foot. Yes, all the yes. And this is something I think Bill gets some credit for this because he definitely brought it more to my attention. The gals from Gate Happens, Courtney Conley was on this show a while back. She's phenomenal. But just like having a better understanding of the foot. And again, just thinking about like the foot or the hand, these are our first contacts when we're interacting with the ground, a barbell, whatever the case may be. So if your contacts aren't correct there, like you said, now we're going to start getting some of that focal loading. And we wonder why our knee hurts or our elbow hurts or our shoulder hurts. This is like a path of least resistance. So if you fix some of this stuff, a lot of times it clears a lot of other things up as well. Yeah, 100%. Number three, the experience. I love this. And I'm so glad you mentioned this. And it takes me back to the glory days of IFAST, right? Because a lot's changed at the gym over the years. But I just think back to this coach's manual that I wrote. And part of it was like how I wanted people to be received before they ever became a member. It was like, hey, we're going to give them a swag bag when they come in for their assessment. We're going to write them a thank you card, like all this stuff before they were even a member. So like the wow factor. But then when they became a client, it's, hey, within five seconds of walking in, hey, Joe, how are you doing? Like immediately, like recognizing that you're there when they do come back. Hey, what's up? I just described it as some form of like non-sexual contact, but it's a handshake, a high five, a hug, like whatever you do with that person, but just bringing them into your world, like showing your excitement for them being there. I thought that was so important. And like you said, I think that's so critical because you could be the best X's and O's trainer or coach on the planet. But if you have the personality of a doorknob or people don't feel like you, you care about them or you're invested in them, they're not going to come back. So 100%. I love and that. If anyone needs a book referral for that, it's about restaurants. You just have to change the context and kind of think outside the box and how you can implement it in the gym. But Unreasonable Hospitality is a great book for that. I think I've heard of that, but have not read it. Yes. Yes. And that's just a good general rule, right? Like too often we read something and if it's not like speaking directly to us as trainers and coaches, we think it's not relevant. Versus, okay, what are like the overarching universal lessons I can take from this and then adapt and modify to work in my space? A hundred percent. And the last I'm, piece. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I think I'm just more of aware of it now. <laughs> like when I see someone come into the gym and the person, they're a client of someone and they kind of just waddle around like the lobby and their head's kind of down a little bit. It's just, that's that's a huge part of it. Like when they walk in, it's boom, they should instantly feel welcome and like a part of the community almost. Yes. Yes. I think that's so important because you got to think too, a lot of people are uncomfortable walking into gyms. It's weird for us. Cause like I walk into a gym and I'm like, sweet, who's <laughs> here? What equipment do they have? I'm excited, but most people are not like that. Right. Again, that's why they're paying a trainer or coach to help them feel comfortable and understand how to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Then the final piece you mentioned here was money. And, and I think I joke around about this all the time, but I think as trainers and coaches, for whatever reason, we are, most of us are just like averse to money, right? We're like, no, no, you take it. I don't want it. I have plenty. <laughs> and then in the back of our minds, we're like, I don't have enough money. <laughs> like you have to know your worth. And it doesn't help that the rec trainer is charging 20 bucks an hour for a personal training session. They got zero experience, a lot of motivation. We've all been there, but you got to be confident in what you're worth. And like you said, you got to be able to justify it, right? If you're worth $100 an hour, explain, hey, look, here's all the things that I do that these other trainers and coaches aren't doing. So finding a way to justify it and sell yourself, I think is really important. And it starts with you. You have to believe you're worth it first before you start asking other people for that amount of money. Absolutely. And, and feel confident that... If someone doesn't appreciate your value, one, look with yourself first of what am I doing to, do I have to rectify the situation and what am I not doing well? But then also at the same time, if that's still not working, maybe that person is just not right for you. Absolutely. That's great. Okay. So now instead of reflecting on the past, <laughs> I want to look towards the future. So what are things that you're passionate about learning right now? Or maybe how do you envision yourself getting better over the next five to 10 years? <laughs> Obviously running. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've learned a lot of lessons this quote unquote, what I'm calling a season. And so I'm super excited to apply those lessons. And I yep. kind of dabble every time, maybe 
two times a week in the morning, I'll kind of dive into this book called Essentials of Ultra Running or read some sort of running related material. The second one is presenting. I presented a, a decent amount of conferences over the past couple of years, and I feel like I want to get better at that. There's definitely better ways and I can convey the message that I want to convey. So learning a little bit about that, practicing, doing more, prepping more, things like that. And then the last one I would say is we kind of talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but growing a business and what I want to represent and what that's going to look like 10, 20 years from now. I have a lot of coaching hours during the week and yeah. am I going to be able to keep that going um, when I grow my family or in 20 years? How am I going to set myself up to create something down the line? And that's why people look up to definitely people like you for that inspiration. And I take at least a minimum of two continuing education experiences per year and I'm currently in a seven-week business course. And oh, nice. Yeah. If anything, it just gives you a little kick in the tush and like it puts yeah. the ball in motion a little bit. Yeah. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I recorded a solo show this morning. And one of the things I talk about is the need to find mentors, hmm. right? Like you got to find professional mentors in your field. But if you're going to be serious about running a business, whether it's like growing your own personal brand or building a brick and mortar business, whatever the case may be, you need to find business mentors as well, because mm-hmm. you didn't, I have a business minor, but it didn't teach me how to run a business, right? And there's so many lessons you learn about running a business that you can never even imagine until you're actually in the trenches and running said fit- fitness business. I was lucky. I had guys like Alan Cosgrove early on. I have Pat Rigsby that has helped kind of guide and shape a lot of the business decisions I've made. But you're absolutely right. If you're going into this, don't go into the gunfight with a knife, Yeah. right? Arm yourself and really try and figure out like, what do I need to do to be successful? Because you, again, it comes back to, you could be the best trainer or coach on the planet. If you don't build the business skills necessary, you're not going to be successful. Yeah, 100%. And there's a huge, maybe not enough appreciation for wisdom people have gone through things that they can share their experiences and you don't have to make those mistakes now learning from someone else who's been into it who's grown something that's probably the course of my continuing education that i'm going to move forward with yeah yeah i think it's just so powerful like the the concept of mentorship and seeking out and finding people that have done what you want to do have built the business that you aspire to build, right? Those people have been there, done that. And then as a next level, if they've helped multiple people do that, they're probably even better at it, right? right? It's one thing to do it yourself. It's another to help other people do it. Okay, so one more, and then we'll kind of do our little lightning round. But (laughs) talk to me about your, can you see the difference IG posts? What prompted you to start those? And how have they been received? I think they're pretty catchy. I like them. They're very good. Oh, thank you, Mike. I'm biased. (laughs) Yeah, no, they're good. They're good. I've actually talked to me about it. I've like hardly ever gotten like a message being like, hey, this post was great. I get tons of messages about these. And I'm like, oh, man, I got to keep going with them. Yeah, they're good. I think you have to think of what do you like to see? And sometimes I see a lot of things and I'm like, okay, like this is like uh, fantasy land, like in comparison to sure. idealism, like having an ideal form of doing something and then reality. And especially as fitness professionals, everything looks so perfect. And I think it's easy to show perfect technique, but maybe more valuable to show a comparison and then points where you can change. And I don't try to pretend it's the only way to do something. I just try to show like maybe a minor tweaks and changes that will benefit the movement. So I'll do a bad rep and then I'll do a good rep and I'll show them together. And then I'll do a little screenshot and I'll throw in some like cue changes for people. Yeah, I think they're super valuable because look, we can all argue about what our preferred movement model is, right? What we feel like a squat or a deadlift or whatever those movements should look like. We can argue about that till the cows come home. But I think it's valuable because you're providing context. You're saying, hey, this is my model. These are deviations that I see from the model. And so it just really helps people, I think, better break down and understand 
like what you want to see out of a lift. And I think there's like this fitness voyeurism thing, right? Where like everybody wants to know, oh, how do you coach this? Or how do you coach that? So I think it just fills that need. And again, people are always looking for those little tweaks or modifications that they can use to coach and cue their clients better. Yeah, exactly. And then it's a little wheel that we always tend to get a little trapped in, even myself, of showing fancier and fancier exercises. But realistically, 99% of the clients that we work with just don't can't do those exercises. So instead of yeah. a heel on the wall push-up, it's, oh, can we just show an elevated push-up? Because that's most <laughs> likely what you're going to be describing. Yeah, you're never going to go viral with those. But I yeah. think the audience that you probably want to cater to, it's really going to resonate with them. So keep For it sure. up. They're good. Thanks. Okay. Last but not least, lightning round. So four fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. Number one, I saw you recently had Mike Boyle on your podcast. So I would love to know what was your favorite Mike Boyle moment from that show? Mike. So I have the More Train, Less Pain podcast, which I do with my friend, Tim Richard, who's a physical therapist. Yeah. And we had Mike Boyle on last week. I think when he was talking about purposeful language around changing an exercise, because the theme of our season is building fitness while working with people in persistent pain. And so I was kind of talking to him a lot about like how he looks at trainers working with people in persistent pain, what they do to kind of work around that, keeping people moving. And I loved how he said, we don't take it like borderline, we don't take an exercise away from people. We don't remove it because there's a lot of emotion attached to that. It's almost like you're being like excluded from the group. It's just sure. a wording of, no, we're not doing this. It's not different. It's not different than other people. It's not right versus wrong. It's, hey, we're just going to try this and see how it goes. Just that little bit of a language switch mm. to make them feel more successful doing something and kind of showing them, hey, you're not doing this wrong. We're just going to do it a little bit different this time. I, I, I love how he talked about that. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Okay, number two, what was your favorite run of 2023? <laughs> my first 50 miler was definitely my favorite. It had 10,000 feet of elevation gain, which is crazy. <laughs> that's savage. That's two miles, right? Oh, I think so. Felt, oh my gosh, that's felt savage. Felt like a billion miles. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in this beautiful like state park, and I was terrified kind of going into it. I don't think I slept the night before thinking about all like the things that I have everything I need because I need to take in a ton of calories during that race and make sure I'm well hydrated. And I don't know what 50 miles is going to feel like running. Like I'm sure that terrifies right. you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> and going through that experience was just incredible. So that was my favorite. Yeah. Do you read Goggins? Of course I do. He's a do man. It's hilarious. Oh my God. The, what is it? Like the 200 mile Moab race or whatever that he ran? Crazy. I'm a, I'm a big That's fan savage. of uh, If you want to follow someone, follow Courtney DeWalter. She's probably the best okay. ultra runner of all time now. She's run, the they call it like the triple crown of 100 mile races. No one's ever done it before. And she won all of them. And they're only a couple weeks apart from each other. Anyway, side note. Savage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have to check her out. All right. Sticking on the theme, number three, <laughs> what running goals do you have for 2024? I haven't picked out maybe smaller races I'm going to do. I'm going to try to back off like the big races a little bit. I think I over overdid myself last summer. I was just so excited about it. But I did. Right. I'm officially signed up for a 100-kilometer race in the Swiss Alps next summer. Oh, wow. That'll be sick. So awesome. That's so sick. So it's 62 miles. 30,000 feet of elevation gain. And then oh we're gosh. probably going to make a little trip out of it to like Switzerland and Italy. Yeah. Gonna be cool. How long ballpark? How long is that going to take? So it's a qualifying race for like more popular races. So if I want to get into those, the cutoff time would be 22 hours. So you're running wow. in the middle of the Swiss Alps in the pitch dark. That's crazy that's crazy that's so funny there was an ultra girl i can't remember her name now it's been so long that came on our show a while back and she said one of her best pieces of advice if you did those kinds of races was if you're gonna fall asleep in the direction that you want to run Ooh. like your head's pointing in that direction i'm like wow 
Like, that's great <laughs> advice. She's like, yeah, you wouldn't think about it, but you're so disoriented and it's pitch black. You wake up and you know at least which way you need to run. I'm like, wow, I don't I never would have thought of that. That's amazing piece of advice. Those, those little things. And right. I don't think I've ever pulled like an all nighter. So the fact that I'll be moving for 22 hours straight, it's, that's going to be just absolutely crazy. Yeah. You're a savage. I can't wait to hear how that goes. <laughs> okay. Last but not least, number four, what's next for Michelle Boland? Other than running in the Swiss Alps. <laughs> Other than running in the Swiss Alps. What else? Exactly. Um, I'm going to keep teaching my strategy course to, to help other coaches make the most out of their continuing education experiences. I'm going to grow that Boston Health and Performance Summit. And I'm going to continue to learn to fill in the gaps of my coaching and growing my business. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Michelle, this has been amazing. Really enjoyed catching up with you, talking about running. I'm just glad you're the one doing it and not me. <laughs> <laughs> but where can my listeners... Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing? Probably the best place to go is just my Instagram. I put up everything there. There's links to everything on my profile, and that's er.michelleboland. Perfect. I'll make sure I get that in the show notes. And again, Michelle, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Mike. All right, my friend. That does it for this week's episode with Michelle Boland. Really hope you enjoyed it. I always enjoy having Michelle on the show. I think she's such a great thinker. I love to see that she's always evolving. And I think most importantly, there was just some great back and forth in this show, especially when you start talking about helping our gym pop clients be more successful in the gym. And when you start to dive in and you talk about running, I mean, so many of the, the athletes and the clients that I've worked with over the years love to run on the side. And while I absolutely get it, and I understand the value that it can provide with conditioning, there's also some elements there that you have to be conscious of. So helping some of these runners better navigate or maybe better mitigate some of these issues that they get from running a lot can be very, very valuable. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I got one small favor to ask. If you're not already subscribed to the show, go ahead and do that right now. iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, the Amazon store, YouTube podcast, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now and hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.